0: you have your Bibles tonight, turn them over to Daniel. This will be the first of a series of lessons going through Daniel. Tonight, we will introduce it and cover probably the first two chapters. And we're going to try to do it in one half hour segments. And so I'll uh, speak for a half an hour. And then after that, you'll be given any opportunity to ask questions or make any observation that you so desire and then we'll close it for tonight, and we'll do the same thing again uh, next week. First of all, the question that we want to uh, look at concerning Daniel, and it really ought to be the question that is in a person's mind, I think, any time they look at any book in the Bible, Uh, especially when you consider today that we are living in a society that is not like the society that those of us that are older grew up in. Uh, There is tremendous doubt tremendous skepticism concerning the inspiration of the Bible in our society, uh, the morality uh, people that exist today in our country. People have tried to come up with uh, many reasons to explain the tremendous change in morality in our country. Uh, I believe it's, it's staked in this issue of the inspiration of the Bible. The, the morality, as we had in the past, was a morality that was based on belief in the Bible. Even those who were not practicing Christians uh, had a certain high degree of respect for it. Uh, It was the basis, the the Bible, the the law of Moses, the teachings of Christ, and the Apostles for our Constitution and for the majority of the laws uh, that have been passed in our our country. It no longer is, is that way. Now the laws of our past are being challenged on every front. Uh, things that would have been considered wrong some years back are perfectly accepted as right. uh, Now, and there's any number of ways of showing this. Uh, uh, The recent event with Magic Johnson and his uh, uh, getting AIDS, and we're all sorry that he has AIDS and, and anybody else that would get it. But the interesting thing to me is that he got AIDS by a lifestyle that a generation ago would have been considered very immoral. Uh, He had an absolute, by his own statement, multiplicity of sexual contacts. Well, the interesting thing is not just that he did that, but there was no remorse or sorrow, or even in our own own society, there was no real indignation uh, that he, along with so many of the athletes and actors and actresses that our young people idolize, conduct himself this way, the real mistake was he didn't practice safe sex, and his message to the young people is going to be, uh, don't make the mistake I did, practice it in a, in a safe way, and he has already been appointed by the president to a high position, and he's going to speak to the youth, and that is his message, unless he changes it. And our society has embraced that as a whole. Uh, some of the strongest comments against it, by the way, have come from the, uh, some of the cardinals and bishops in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, who have spoke out very strongly for uh, one man, one woman, until death do you part, and for morality and, and for trying. There's one cardinal that's going to talk with uh, Magic Johnson and try to get him to change his message uh, to one of abstaining uh, from sexual relations until marriage itself. But suffice it to say, those that would feel that way are in the minority in our society. And so our morals have changed, and I believe the change in morals, and of course we give many other uh, issues, that, that just happens to be one we're all, we all have right on our mind, but I believe it's hooked into a respect for the Bible as the word of God. If the Bible is not written by men who were inspired by God, then obviously there's no way you can take any moral premise and say it's any more right than any other premise except you just happen to personally agree with it. And if a society does not have a work that they recognize as being a revelation from God uh, with, with statements of morality uh, that are from God, then there is no way you can really have a definite right and wrong in that society. Who is any other human being to tell you that you are wrong and, and, he, and he is right? Uh, your opinion is, is as good as his opinion and his as, as good as yours. And so we're seeing in our society a, a situation where there are no definite right and wrongs uh, anymore. I mean, all those things that, that uh, literally destroy us in an obvious way, we're willing to say that's wrong. But even there, we, we don't know how to handle it. Uh, murderers murder and keep on. We don't know what to do with murderers. You see, back when we followed the principles here, we believed that human life was made in the image of God, and when a person in a premeditated way took the life of another person, his life should be taken in return. That is the teaching of the Bible. Genesis 9, 6, Exodus 21, over into the New Testament where Paul makes a statement, if, if I have done anything worthy of death, then I don't refuse to die. Uh, we don't know what to do uh, in our society. God is out of the picture. Of, Morality is, uh, people are just the product of their environment and their genes, and therefore there's no accountability. So, in a very important subject is not just does something come from the Bible, but uh, really is there any evidence that the information itself uh, is inspired by God? And as we go through Daniel, we want to look at it from this standpoint as we look at the messages. Now, let's look at a, a few of the things concerning Daniel and and why you and I receive it. You and I, of course, are looking at it from a Christian viewpoint, but after we look at it from a Christian viewpoint, later on in the lesson, after we've concluded Daniel, we're going to look at it from just the viewpoint of somebody in the world, uh, looking at the evidence. First of all, you and I start off as Christians, and, and we embrace Daniel as part of the inspired scriptures because we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We have examined the evidence for his resurrection We have examined the prophecies that pointed to him. Uh, We've examined all of the evidences uh, in the Gospels and in the New Testament uh, and have come to the conclusion that Jesus uh, is the Messiah, uh, that the resurrection is a historical fact. Well, then believing that, it becomes very impressive to our minds when we read Matthew. And Matthew is written for the specific purpose of trying to persuade Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew quotes Daniel in Matthew 24:15 as a prophet of God. And when Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the end of that age and the ushering in of a new age and a new covenant, new era, he quotes Daniel. Okay, so the very fact that Jesus endorsed Daniel. But then again, Matthew would never have used that quote had it not also been the case that the vast majority of the Jews in his day (laughs) respected Daniel as a prophet of God. I mean, if you're a Jew out there, and Matthew is trying to write this material and persuade you that Jesus is the Messiah, of what value is it for Matthew to quote Daniel unless you are already convinced? that Daniel is a prophet of God. So Jesus quoted it, Matthew used it, and in the process we see that at least the vast majority of the Jews of Jesus' day respected Daniel as a prophet of God. When we look at the Greek Septuagint, these are the uh, translations, the translation I should say. By about 70 great Greek scholars, somewhere between 280 and 250 BC, translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Remember, Alexander the Great had conquered the civilized world of his day and had spread the Greek culture, and he was so effective that a majority of the Jews began to speak and use the Greek language. In fact, the educated people all over the civilized world. And so the Greeks, or the Jews, I should say, found it advantageous to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And so then when we go back and we see that the top Jewish scholars of that day translated Daniel into the Greek language and put it there with the other books of what you and I refer to as the Old Testament, again it shows that the top Jewish scholars recognized Daniel Uh, As a prophet of God. Later on, after the first century, and after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple, when the Jews were putting together the uh, Hebrew canon, or recognizing, I should say, the Hebrew canon, again, the top scholars among the Jews recognized Daniel as a prophet of God and therefore included it. And so the top scholars before Jesus among the Jews. The top scholars after Jesus among the Jews acknowledge Daniel as a prophet of God. Jesus quotes him. Matthew uses him because the majority of the Jews of his day already respected him as a prophet of God, and therefore it was advantageous to use him uh, in that particular discourse in Matthew 24 and verse 15. Also, when we look at Daniel from the standpoint of of some information that we have outside of the book itself. Uh, We know, for example, that especially in the past century or so, a little over a century, really, the last maybe century and a half, there's been a tremendous amount of archaeological discoveries over in that part of the world, uh, in and around Israel and in Babylon and in those countries that were in contact with Israel. And as a result of those discoveries, we've learned a lot of information that has helped us. Before 1843, there were those that challenged Daniel as being inspired because in the fifth chapter of Daniel, Daniel recognizes Belshazzar as being the king of Babylon. And he is the king of Babylon at the time that Babylon falls by the king of Medo-Persia. And so these people point out that, well, look, we have an obvious discrepancy. Obviously, the writer is in ignorance of history. He's writing probably uh, somewhere in the second century, uh, somewhere between one and two hundred, maybe about one sixty-four right in there. And in trying to quote concerning a king centuries before, He has simply made up a name that he could slide by those ignoramuses of that day, but surely not the smart uh, theologians of today. And we know that Nabonidus was king at that time, so we have a direct contradiction. We can factually state uh, from Babylonian history uh, that Nabonidus was king at that time, and the Bible has Belshazzar, And so this is evidence that the writer was doing it later on and simply made a mistake there. Uh, and, And these kind of mistakes you can expect if the writer is not writing as a contemporary. Well, at the time this was challenged, there was no other information outside the Bible that mentioned Belshazzar. It was only in the Bible. And there was secular affirmation of Nabonidus as being king. And so it seemed like an obvious conflict Christians hung in there and said, we don't know what the explanation is, but there has to be. They did this because of their common belief in Jesus and his endorsement. Their understanding that the Greek scholars had included Daniel in the Greek Septuagint. Their knowledge that the Hebrew scholars after the first century had included Daniel in the canon. Also the fact that Daniel was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls and was uh, a book that was obviously uh, recognized as inspired, and also because the internal information in Daniel was harmonious with all the moral principles in the Old Testament and also harmonious with the picture of God given in the Old Testament. And so Christians said, we don't know what the explanation is, but we know there's, there is one, or has to be. Well, in 1843, an archaeologist by the name of Bada, with a big find in in that area, uncovers information, and for the first time, we have documentation outside the Bible of Belshazzar. We run into the name of Belshazzar. We have documents with Belshazzar's name on it and Nabonidus' name on it. And the archaeologist comes forth with more information, and we find that, yes, Nabonidus was king, his son was Belshazzar, but Nabonidus was somewhat of a religious archaeologist himself, and he would leave Babylon and go out into his other interest, and he left his son Belshazzar at home in Babylon to be in charge of things. And so then what we find through more information is perfectly harmonious with what we find in Daniel. And now we even understand another statement we didn't understand before in Daniel. What is it when it is said that uh, Daniel was to be the third ruler? Well, we know now. There was Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and then Daniel. But here's the interesting thing about this discovery vindicating uh, Daniel and being harmonious with it. And that is that up until that discovery in 1843, there was absolutely no piece of literature known to mankind that even had the name Belshazzar in it, except the Bible. And then when it comes forth, we find it perfectly harmonious. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me has been all through the years and and one of the things that gives me so much confidence now when somebody makes an argument about something that you really can't prove one way or the other is that through the centuries, the people that have tried to discredit the Bible has, have always attacked it in the areas of silence. In other words, in areas that you couldn't prove one way or the other. And so they would just attack it. And I point, it's like uh, before we went to the moon and somebody says, hey, the other side of the moon is such and such. And you don't believe it, but you've never been over there, neither's neither is anybody else, so you can't prove they're wrong. And then after you go there, you, you can. It's very easy to make arguments when you're dealing with information that people cannot dogmatically prove one way or the other. But every time, without exception, that the archaeological discoveries have come in, they have always verified the scriptures and contradicted the theories that were against it. Uh, whether you're talking about the liberal theologians who said that, hey, Moses this material that Moses supposedly wrote, you know, we know it's manufactured. I mean, look at the Jebusites and the, the Hittites and, and these other people that Moses talks about. There's no record of them outside the Bible. They're in the myth category. And then the archaeologist comes along and, and verifies every last one of them and in the exact location where the Bible puts them, and with the same kind of customs and the same kind of gods as the Bible has them with. So it is with Daniel. Archaeology has been very kind to Daniel. Daniel's written in Hebrew and in Aramaic, beginning with the second chapter, the fourth verse, and unto the seventh chapter. Uh, we have material written in Aramaic. Uh, the rest of Daniel's in Hebrew. Well, again, this is harmonious with the... Uh, internal nature of Daniel, because Daniel, in our book, is an individual that is a young man, a young Hebrew, speaking the Hebrew language, is carried into captivity, and then is sent to school for three years by Nebuchadnezzar, and is taught the language of the Babylonians, which is Aramaic. And by the way, Aramaic will eventually become the language of the Jews in their Babylonian captivity, so that by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, most of the Jews in that area... Uh, spoke Aramaic. And so we find Daniel written in uh, the both the Hebrew and the Aramaic language. Now, I'm not a language scholar myself, uh, as far as somebody that is a specialist in that realm. But reading from those who are language scholars, uh, what what I have been told is that the Aramaic in Daniel is written in a way as if it is a learned Aramaic. In other words, it's written in the Aramaic language, but it's obvious it's being written by someone that is a Hebrew. It it would be like you learning French and speaking French, but separate from your accent, even in your writing, it would be obvious to French scholars that you're writing uh, as an American, even though you're doing it in French. And so the Aramaic is said to be that of, of one who has studied and learned the language, Whereas the Hebrew flows very natural and, and seems to be that of somebody who spoke it as his, as his native language. And that again fits in uh, with the story of, of Daniel. Let's look at the book in an overall view. And as we go through here, we'll look at the events in the book and then we'll come back and, and look very specifically at some of the evidences. And we want to note also before we get into it is that Uh, to the question as to why uh, that almost from the very first in the uh, early second century uh, that Daniel has been so tremendously challenged by unbelievers. Uh, The reason is uh, that there are some absolutely fantastic things that happen in Daniel. You, You just simply, if the events recorded in Daniel are true and they actually happen, and if those prophecies and dreams actually took place, When they are portrayed as taking place, you just have to embrace Daniel as inspired by God. The only way you can get out, the only way you can get out of rejecting Daniel as a prophet of God and inspired is by saying that these events that are so fantastic are totally fictitious and that these visions and dreams that everybody acknowledged were fulfilled that they had to be written after the event and then redacted and made to appear as prophecy. You have to say that if you're going to reject Daniel as inspired. Well, then if you have to say that, you have to set out looking for evidence to prove your point. And so that's why that that Daniel has been so uh, tremendously attacked. And by the way, that doesn't bother me. I love it. Uh, You should love it. Uh, It's just like as much as I hate that old Paul had to go to jail, I'm glad they put him in jail because of the letters that came forth from that. As much as I hate that Paul and the apostles had to die in the way they do, I'm glad that historically I'm given the opportunity to see that the people that wrote that material believed it so strongly that they would lay down their life for it. And I'm glad that the critics have gone after Daniel. Because in going after Daniel, they have motivated believers who believed on the premise that I set forth initially, they have motivated them to go back and meticulously go over it with a fine-tooth comb and challenge everything, and the end result has been an even greater respect for Daniel. And by the way, that's true any time that a critic attacks anything that's truth, it causes other people to really go over it in a meticulous way. And if it is true, it will shine brighter than it was ever, than it ever shined before, and I believe that's the case with uh, Daniel. If he was going to give a theme of Daniel, I think it would probably be the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men in, in all ages. By, by sovereignty, we mean control. Uh, the sovereignty of God is expressed in the Bible is one where on the one hand God is the creator. On the other hand, God gives us all free choice and allows us to exercise that free choice. But from within that framework of our exercising free choice, God is in control, and he is bringing about the accomplishment of his will here on this earth. And the ultimate goal is for his will to be done here as it is in heaven. And so Daniel is going to give us a picture of the sovereign God, Who's not just the God of the Jewish people? He's the God of the Babylonians. He's the God that can have Nebuchadnezzar out eating grass if he wants to. He's the God that knows when the Babylonian kingdom is going to end and when the next one's going to replace it. He's the God that knows when the one will replace it. And he's the God that, when the fourth great empire comes on the scene, is going to bring about a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And he's the God that is in control of the spreading of his will, providentially caring for his people in times of distress, disciplining his people on the one hand, such as the Jews in Babylonian captivity, but on the other hand, doing that discipline in such a way that nobody among the pagans or among the Jews is going to get confused and think, hey, all idols are really God. And so Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and people like them are there to interpret these events so that nobody's going to be mistaken about the fact that, that hey, God's people may be in captivity, but Jehovah is still the creator of the universe. He's in control. Nebuchadnezzar, you better recognize it, and, and everybody else that comes along. And so Daniel written showing and displaying the the sovereignty and the control of God. And as you read it from a Christian viewpoint, uh, once you have examined the evidence and and been convinced of its inspiration, it does a lot of good things for your mind. I mean, in our world today, you just think. uh, Here we've got AIDS on a rampage. Uh, We've got nuts like Saddam Hussein out there and Qaddafi. we, we have an election in a state where we got a choice between a crook and a Ku Klux Klansman. There, there's so, much, so many things going wrong in politics that we don't even know who to vote for. We, we vote for the, so many times for the lesser of two evils, and, and it's so easy to get discouraged. And we, we see our, our nation going down the tubes morally. And I think from within that framework, you can really get down In our society today, you can really get down if you don't realize that God's still in control. God still has his 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to bow, Uh, that God is over all the rulers, and that God is still bringing about his will on this earth. Uh, and in the final analysis, when every dictator has shouted and every immoral person has shook his fist in God, that, that God is still in control and his, his way is, is going to win out. And I think we can look at Daniel and put yourself in Daniel's situation in the captivity at that time and how bad it looked and see how in control God really was. No Jew realized it, but how in control uh, that God really was and that they are going to come out on top. And so we're going to look at the sovereignty of God as we go through it and another thing we'll look at is the conflicts that take place within the book. The first conflict uh, is a conflict of a young man. Do I obey the health code of the law of Moses or do I indulge in the pagan meals and ways of eating and, and doing things? And, and here's a young man going into captivity and, and having the integrity to obey God when there weren't too many people of God in in his environment. That's our uh, big conflict at first. The next is a conflict between uh, the magicians and the astrologers of that day and a man who claims to be a prophet of God. Is there really any difference that anybody else can discern and see? And we all have a conflict there. And then in the third chapter, there's a conflict with idolatry. And then we move on from there, and there's a conflict dealing with the desecration of the things from the temple of God and and, and our seeing that God is providentially aware and, and concerned about these matters. And then we move into the God's providential care and deliverance of Daniel and, and the young men that went into captivity with him. And then as we look at that we'll look at the many visions that speak to the future itself. Okay. Let's conclude the the introduction then for tonight. And tomorrow or I should say next week, we will specifically read the first two chapters and discuss just that, the first two chapters, and then we'll proceed on through the book. Okay, as we conclude, anybody with any comments or observations, questions, anything you'd like to say about the material that we talked about tonight? Okay, if you think of any next week as we get started and you'd like to back up and make any comment or observation, feel free to go back at any time. Uh, We'll conclude the lesson at this point.